good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Major General Larry Stutzring, U.S. Air Force retired and Director of Research here at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies and welcome to our Space Power Forum. Uh, we're very fortunate that General David D.T. Thompson could join us today. General Thompson is the Vice Chief of Space Operations for the U.S. Space Force where he is responsible for assisting the Chief of Space Operations in organizing, training, and equipping space forces in the United States and overseas, integrating space policy and guidance and coordinating space-related activities. He's a graduate of the Air Force Academy, an Olmsted scholar and a proud graduate of IPCAF. He's a career space officer with assignments and operations, acquisition, research and development, and of course, command. Well, General, uh, thanks for taking time and being with us today. Hey, good morning, uh, General Stutzer, and thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to all of you today. Great, sir. Well, uh, thanks for again for being here. And what I think I want to do is give you a little bit of time to open up here. Uh, tell us what it's taking to build out U.S. Space Force, maybe some of your challenges and priorities. And with that, over to you, General. Okay, very good. Thanks. And and I'll I do want to take just a few minutes, but but uh, what's really I think valuable and important in these sessions is the discussion that follows. So I'll just say. I'll just spend a few minutes talking about a few things briefly, but look forward to the, uh, the follow-on engagement uh, discussion and QA session. Uh, first, let me say um, uh, certainly the entire Department of the Air Force, not just US Space Force, but uh, the US Air Force, the Space Force, and our entire department are very excited now that we have both a uh, confirmed uh, secretary and confirmed undersecretary, right? Secretary Kendall and Undersecretary Jones, um, uh, both already as you might imagine, uh, hit the ground running, uh, really getting started quickly and, and um, uh, ready to move us uh, into the next phase. I, I'd also like to, so we're excited they're here. We're excited to, to, that, that that civilian leadership is in place and, and uh, they're gonna take us places we need to. I'd also like to just take a moment again uh, and publicly thank uh, Acting Secretary in the Interim, uh, uh, the Honorable John Roth, who who he believes now has completed 47 years of service. He thought he had completed it earlier, but he's uh, uh, not just over that 47 years, certainly, but in this interim as he's kept us moving forward and led us and prepared us for uh, the incoming secretary and undersecretary, thank him for his service as well. Um, so just briefly talk a little bit about where we are with the Space Force. Uh, I've been in many places and, and, and with, the, with the CSO and others talking about this before. Year one of the Space Force was very much uh, focused on inventing the force, designing it, getting it in place. Uh, that was really about an 18 month activity. The design is complete, the resourcing is complete, certainly several more years of building it out fully, but that phase of establishing a Space Force is, is complete. And so year two really has been focused on integration of the force. Integration of the force with the services, integration with the force with the combatant commands, integration of the force with the rest of the, uh, what I'll call the interagency and with our partners and allies. And we've, we've uh, taken some pretty aggressive and uh, significant steps thus far. Um, uh, the first is uh, inter-service transfers. As many of you know, we began with a large transfer of individuals from the United States Air Force. Um, today, our numbers stand at about 5,800 in uh, uh, uniforms in the, in the Space Force today, um, looking uh, uh, to bring in uh, several uh, dozen more in the first tranche from the Air Force, but also bringing them in from the Air Force Academy and uh, basic military training. Uh, but we've also just identified uh, our first tranche, the first 50 of inter-service transfers from 
um, the Army and the Marine Corps and the Navy, they're kind of our beta test. They're trailblazing the path for large-scale inter-service transfer from those services into the Space Force. Uh, they've already begun that activity. Um, and even as we do that, we are, as we speak, selecting up to about 350 others from that group who will follow behind them once they've trailblazed the path for that inter-service transfer. Um, in addition to that, we're finalizing our transfer plans with the Army and the Navy for the transfer of missions and functions, um, some specific transfer of, of uh, uh, satellite communications missions and functions from the Army and the Navy, and we've begun early planning with the um, uh, Army for some follow-on uh, transfer of, of some missile warning functions. So that work is going very well, and, and we appreciate the collaboration and partnership of the Army, the Navy, and and uh, for some of the inter-service transfer of the Marine Corps. Um, we just completed our first four-star to four-star warfighter talks between the US Space Force and US Space Command. As you might imagine, there's been tremendous and there's daily interaction and discussion and, and things that we're sorting out as, as we determine um, how the, the primary combatant command that, that receives our forces and, and we as the primary force or provider for US Space Command work that relationship but another huge and important step, both US Space Force and US Space Command sent elements to uh, PACOM specific century uh, exercise with the specific purpose of understanding how the US Space Force as a service and US Space Command as a combatant command um, integrate and provide capabilities and, and contribute to combatant commander operations and objectives as part of Pacific century. Uh, so that was, that was tremendous in terms of what componency might look like, what U.S. Space Command's role related to combat commands is, what U.S. Space Force's role uh, related. That was, we sent both Space Force and Space Command sent one stars down there to lead teams. And I think it was incredibly productive, not just for our two organizations, but helping to inform the other combat commands how we should proceed in the future. Um, deep already into mill-to-mill -mill connections uh, with uh, a whole host of uh, countries, General Raymond just got back from a, a multi-day trip to Europe where he met with a whole host of countries who fought by creation of the Space Force, sort of their interest and, and, and need and understanding of what they need to do has been energized. And they've reached out to us to look at how we develop relationships, how we expand relationships and how we better do in space what the nation and really our allies and partners have known how to do for decades in the air and on land and at sea. Um, and it's not just our, um, uh, not just our, what I'll call our tried and true and, and well understood partners. We've, we've had countries from uh, uh, South America and the, others in the Indo-Pacific who are interested in establishing some sort of a mill-to-mill -mill relationship as it comes to security and space. Uh, so those are a lot of the activities related to integration, not fully. Um, um, but as we do that, we continue also to address the challenges, which I would say the reasons for which a space force was created. We provided space capabilities to the joint force for decades. Uh, we did it under the Air Force very effectively. The game changer that really drove the creation of the space force was the threats that we face. Uh, the fact that we now have to defend and protect those capabilities we provide and look at how we deny space capabilities to others. So those are the primary elements of a, the need for a space force. Uh, and to bring coherence and consistency and unity to those activities inside the Department of Defense. We just rolled out uh, our 22 budget. We're, we're still working with Congress on final implementation. 
and our priorities for that budget were really first to ensure that we can continue to provide the capabilities we already have from GPS to missile warning to satellite communications to, to supporting the NRO and others with ISR from space. Um, but now uh, really focusing on defending and protecting those capabilities so that they can continue to provide what they need under attack, um, pivoting toward uh, designs and systems and architectures and forces that were really designed to operate under threat. The ones we have in space really weren't. So in, in addition to protecting what we have today, we're gonna to pivot toward architectures in the future that, that are designed uh, to be resilient and robust and deliver capabilities under attack. Um, again, we've got to look at a whole host of ways uh, to deny uh, adverse use of space capabilities. If you think about it today and you really look at what's going on in the Indo-Pacific region, um, left to its own devices, our forces in that part of the world, uh, 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 maritime forces, air forces, land forces, and others will be under constant surveillance and monitoring by Chinese overhead space constellation. Um, that poses great threat to our joint forces and to our potential operations. And, and we have to have means by which to address that. And then finally, um, a tremendous number of enablers for forces of a warfighting domain. Um, because the space has been a, had been a benign domain for so long, the need for a robust intelligence enterprise, uh, especially an operational tactical enterprise like we see in the air, like we see in the maritime domain and land did not exist. We've got to have that available. Our test and evaluation enterprise was really focused on ensuring that our satellites operated effectively, just simply operated every single day in the space domain. We now have to create a test and evaluation enterprise that tests and confirms that in fact, these capabilities operate under attack, just like combat aircraft, just like uh, uh, combat uh, action groups at sea, so on and so forth. We now have to build the enterprise that does that. Um, we, have to have, we have to have more effective and detailed management of an entire suite of space professionals. And so all those enablers that need to support what is truly a military service and, and more importantly, military forces in the domain. So we keep, uh, uh, so, we, so we invested in those in 22 and we've made significant progress in 22. We're gonna continue working those uh, priorities as we work with first the Department of Defense and then obviously uh, uh, Congress on building the budget for 23. And then finally, um, uh, before we move on to questions, the, uh, many of you have probably seen recently the, um, Secretary of Defense released um, our principles for um, and tenets of responsible behavior in space. Um, you know, again, using the analogy of, uh, you know, military aircraft in international airspace and, and commercial and civil and military uh, um, uh, vessels on the high seas. We understand uh, through, through decades and centuries of activity, what responsible behavior looks like, um, what professional behavior looks like, what unsafe behavior looks like, what rules of engagement exist based on that behavior. Um, absolutely time, long since time to really, really develop that in space. And certainly uh, uh, inside the Department of Defense, the release of those tenants from the sec uh, DEF is an important step. And of course, we'll work with the rest of the US government, our partners and allies to engage more broadly as we really try to uh, uh, institute and incorporate those, those tenets of behavior as we go forward. 
Um, just a few of the things uh, by way of opening comments that, that are keeping us busy, obviously many others, uh, but let me stop there and really get to the meat of the session and, and look forward to the, the questions and comments and discussion that follows. Very good, that was a great stage setter, General, uh, and, uh, and an update actually. Uh, by the way, I see that in the markup, I know you can't get into these discussions, but uh, the money came with all those people that are transferred and that's good news, that's good news. Um, and I, I will say also, uh, we very much appreciate with the standup of our Space Power Advantage Research Center, you know, it's really been a place where we're seeing the talent you have that's, that's speaking up and moving out. And uh, please pass that on. The team is great that we work with over Thank there. Thank you. Well, let me, let me explore a little bit uh, in terms of the threat. You brought up the Indo-Pacific uh, and this counter space technology uh, leads us to the you know, clear conclusion that China and Russia see space as a critical war fighting domain and they are developing ways of interrupting US space operations both in peace and in war and uh, all areas in between. What can you tell us a little more about how Space Force is preparing to defend against uh, our space architecture against potential attacks? Okay, okay. Uh, sure, a couple, of, uh, a couple of things first. First and foremost, we do have to do uh, uh, as much as we can to, to protect and defend the capabilities that are on orbit today. Um, while they were never really designed to operate in a warfighting domain, it doesn't mean that we're, that we're standing still, that we're not taking any actions. There's a, there's a whole host of things we can and we have done. The first is um, there are some adjustments we can make to the current systems, especially those systems that have been designed and are under construction or, and are being fielded uh, to allow them to be able to contribute more to their defense. For example, um, you know, in the past, the operation really has been uh, typically there's fuel on board the uh, spacecraft and, and it's used for two things. First of all, it's used for orbit raising and final placement of the spacecraft into orbit. And then it's used for attitude control and, and things like that throughout the life of the spacecraft. Well, um, if in fact, and in fact, in several cases, we have redesigned the software, redesigned the flight control, redesigned the flight profiles, in fact, upgraded our launch vehicles so that we deliver those satellites to orbit with a significant amount of, of more fuel available on board um, so that we can introduce the concept of maneuver um, just as you would do in any other domain um, should we sense an impending attack? And so, so things like that and, and ways to sense that you're under attack. Um, uh, and like I said, building responses and, and, and our, our guardian warfighters developing tactics, techniques, and procedures for uh, when we transmit, when we don't, how we configure the satellite, how we make it a harder target based on uh, what, the, what it looks like, what its mission is, the, the things that are available. So a whole host of things we're doing with today's system just to make them a little more defensive. Um, and I'll tell you, there are other things that we're, that we're working and preparing um, that aren't specifically on board the spacecraft to help to contribute to that defense. And, and the other thing I'll tell you there is, it's, it's not just a single domain activity, just, we, just like we do with the rest of the, of the joint force. There's a whole host of ways in which you um, protect your forces and your capabilities and your platforms. You may do it uh, through cyberspace, you may do it through the air, you may do it in a whole, whole host of ways. And so, so we're also looking at a multi-domain approach 
to include in space to help protect the capabilities that we have today. Uh, the second thing is absolutely, as we think about those systems and architectures and forces that come, now is absolutely the time to start designing and fielding those architectures and those forces um, with the threat and, um, and, the, and the performance needed in mind. And, and generally speaking, and actually that was the, the creation of the Space Warfighting and Analysis Center. Um, uh, we, we previously, and we still have this organization called the Space Security and Defense Program. Many of the folks listening today know what that organization is, what it does, how it has really helped us among other things in how we protect and defend what we have today, but they are a tremendous analytical capability that we're now gonna apply across the entire space enterprise to do a tremendous number of trades on uh, performance and uh, a number of uh, um, uh, spacecraft in a constellation and what orbit regimes they ought to work in and what the cost is and how these things respond and perform under attack. Many of the types of analyses that we've done with other forces and other force design activities and other domains over the years, we're finally now bringing effectively uh, to space. In fact, they have, they're almost complete with their first serious force design activity, which is missile warning, missile tracking, missile defense. And so those are the two big things we're doing to address the threat in terms of what, in terms of the adversary trying to take that capability away from us. Um, protect what we have and quickly pivot to architectures that naturally are more robust and resilient in the face of attack. And, and we're doing that not just uh, so that in fact those capabilities are there uh, should it come to conflict, but also hopefully to communicate very clearly and, and effectively to any potential adversary. If you try and attack, you know, the deterrence message, which is yes, try and attack us in space, you're not gonna succeed, right? So uh, that's, that's a tremendous uh, uh, new way, new course and uh, I, I'm just curious, you know, even going back to the mid 2000s, we uh, we were talking about uh, even then, you know, the future of uh, do we need a cyber command? And when you think about it, space and cyber are inextricably linked. And, and so I'm wondering, cyber defenses in the space realm, that's important to the overall health of the space enterprise, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the reasons um, as, as you and others know, this force and this service is very narrowly focused. We're focused on operations in the space domain. We're focused on the intelligence that's required to operate effectively in the space domain. We're focused on acquisition and engineering and the development and fielding activities that we need to put these forces and these capabilities in the domain. And the last thing that is part of our mission set is cyber. And that's exactly why, because of the because they're inextricably linked because of that, among other things that, that uh, today RF and laser connection, if you cannot get the data and the capabilities provided from space to the ground, it doesn't matter to the soldier, the sailor, the airman or the Marine on the ground or our national leaders. And so it is inextricably linked on board the spacecraft. It's inextricably linked in our ground systems and our command control systems. It's inextricably linked in uh, processing and exploitation and dissemination. And so um, we've created an 06 level command in the Air Force, we call them groups or wings, in this case, primarily focused on mission groups, uh, specifically focused on cyber. We are building that out so that we have indigenous US Space Force cyber defense teams 
um, resident on every single one of our space mission systems. They lash up and will continue to lash up with US Cyber Command. They're kind of the beat cops on our mission systems. Um, uh, as, uh, as then we, we go to Cyber Command for the layered defense above that, um, we're putting these cyber professionals in uh, uh, more fully into our uh, uh, acquisition programs so that we ensure, no kidding, especially the ideas of cybersecurity and cyber defense are built in. So absolutely critical and it has been and will continue to be one of the key components of the new service we're building. Uh, tremendous strategy. Uh, so you mentioned acquisition. Let me swing to that. Uh, the Recently, the director of the Space Rapid Capabilities Office said it was you know, too early for consolidation. Uh, given that consolidation of space acquisition organizations was one of the main reasons that the Congress created the Space Force, uh, what do you see as the vision for the end state, uh, end state of uh, acquisition consolidation? You know, is it one organization? Is it, is it two under? Space Force, so, uh, one right, doing so, procurement sustainment. Yeah, so I'm, um, um, uh, I, I look at what we're doing in acquisition a little differently than, than let's, let's say the term consolidation. Uh, certainly uh, a couple of things. One is uh, uh, bringing focus and unity of effort and activity um, to, that, to, to that enterprise. But we are not at this point looking at what I'll call consolidation. And what I mean when I say consolidation is uh, in creating Space Systems Command, um, uh, we, saw, we see a role and a responsibility for those constituent parts. Um, Space and Missile System Center, which um, uh, you know, has, a, has a, a tremendous and decades long expertise in some of our very capable space systems um, that will certainly evolve and has started that evolution in their organization with their first, what, what they called uh, SMC 2.0, but they will continue to grow and evolve and, and, and focus in certain areas. Uh, Space RCO will continue to have its portfolio of what I'm gonna call uh, capabilities that we haven't pursued in the past. Um, this idea of rapidly prototyping and, and experimenting and developing and then handing off for larger scale production, perhaps to what was what is today SMC. Um, and then Space Development Agency. And on, on the 1st of October, 2022, Space Development Agency will become part of the US Space Force. Um, their leverage of commercial, their focus on those uh, uh, large scale, uh, relatively on a, on a unit by unit basis, um, uh, uh, lower cost satellites, and especially related to proliferation. So we see all of those organizations having uh, in most cases, very unique um, and, and uh, uh, capabilities and filling requirements, but there will be places where um, there will be some overlap in which we would like to see a little bit of competition. Uh, you know, as you know, um, we like to see competition in industry because it, it makes these organizations uh, more innovative, more aggressive, um, uh, uh, looking at uh, new and better ways of doing things aggressively because they know, uh, you know, the, the, in this case, the company or who else next door is doing the same thing. There are certain places, it's not complete overlap, but there are certain places where we'll look for ideas and capabilities and, and concepts from the different organizations to see how they might play out and how we might put them through um, the warfighting analysis piece. And so, so clearly there's roles for each one of those organizations that demand that they remain in essence what they are. There's places of overlap where they can compete and they can collaborate. Um, 
but what we want to do, and it's not consolidation, what we want to do is bring enough um, uh, unity uh, across all of those activities so that we're sure they're not duplicating unnecessarily. They're not, they're not, they're not redundant. They're not duplicating. They're not working in conflict with each other. And across that entire acquisition enterprise, we have the right focus and the right priority on the right set of capabilities rather than letting them proceed down individual stovepipe paths, which may not cover our highest priorities, which might be too redundant and too duplicative. And so, so absolutely right, we're not looking to consolidate, but we are looking to bring some, some, some unity and some integrated effort between them and other things as we move forward. Very good. So uh, <clears throat> it's, been a, it's been hot lately talking about overclassification of space. And, uh, and we hear about it over here at Mitchell Institute uh, frequently. Uh, we do understand the need for classification and security, but uh, even General Hyten has, has spoke out on the overclassified nature of space operations budget and policy. What, what might be underway or what are we thinking to do to tackle this issue? Is it a true problem? Uh, it is absolutely a true problem. Um, uh, for several reasons, and you know, and and, and I, many people have, and many and lots of folks can discuss how we got to this place. Um, uh, yeah. We're there. We're there. You know, the, you know, by a series of, of what were certainly uh, perhaps logical decisions at the time. But what we really have to do, I'm going to call it rationalize. You know, a similar approach to classification that we take. This is something we can learn from other domains. Is um, uh, a better job of, of protecting what's no kidding vitally important in these capabilities and the way they operate. And, 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 and obviously one of the reasons we classify is to protect potential vulnerabilities and limitations, um, but, but ensure that we're also not overclassifying to the point that first of all, we can communicate effectively to friends, to allies, to the American public, to Congress, what we're doing, why we're doing it and what the capabilities are. Um, uh, and then the second piece of that is to make it more effective in terms of integration, integration, not only with the rest of the joint force, but with our friends and allies. Um, and we just, the culture that we grew up in, you know, where we were, where it was very much self-contained, very narrow. We had capabilities that nobody else did. There was no drive or requirement to integrate to a great extent because no one else had these capabilities and didn't know how to use these capabilities. But that culture has has continued on for so long, for too long, and we really need to break it. Um, we're working it in the Space Force. General Heighton's pushing it. Um, I wish we owned our own destiny in that regard, but we don't. It's part of a broader activity, and we just have to work through that activity. What I will say is, um, I think we're on the verge of a couple of significant steps, and we've already taken a few, um, to really start breaking some of those shackles that we've put ourselves in. To, to first of all, share more broadly where we are classified, but really be able to talk more publicly and openly about capabilities we need to for the purposes of integration, building the trust and confidence and understanding of the American people and our leaders um, and communicating to friends, allies and adversaries alike, the capabilities we have and what they can anticipate. You know, great, great example, um, uh, the B-21 is a tremendous capability, um, brings tremendous, is gonna bring tremendous combat capability to the to the nation, to our friends and allies, and to the joint force. We know there's a B-21. We all know what it does. And generally, you know, um, the things that it that that are to its advantage, 
but very quickly that you know you stop talking about some very specific aspects of it and it serves the purpose both of friends allies the nation understanding the combat capability that, that the air force is providing for the nation at the same time protecting those things that will make it that effective combat arm for decades to come that's we have to move more on that kind of approach to space and that's what we're trying to do oh that's that's outstanding i, I let me interject uh, it's an interesting issue from an entrepreneur's uh, perspective. I discussed uh, this with a business leader uh, who wanted to bring their company's talents and, and intellectual property to bear, uh, to, be, to enter uh, the defense market. And uh, in order to even read and respond to some of the requests for proposal, he needed to already have a facility clearance and, and some tightly controlled SCI billets and it, he was in a catch-22. He wants to get in, but he has to be in to get in. And uh, so fortunately for him, he was large enough that he bought a company that had a classified contract. So do you see this, you know, this is an impediment to really importing all the technology and innovation Space Force needs for the future, right? It, it is absolutely. And you just described one of the very significant shortfalls and limitations of the approach of the past. Um, and, and we're not all the way there yet, but we're also looking for uh, other ways to enable that sort of relationship that doesn't require immediately, like, as you said, you jump in and you're fully able to operate at, you know, at a high, the highest security levels. Um, uh, lots of ways we're doing that. One is with um, the Space Enterprise Consortium uh, created by uh, Space and Missile Systems Center and operated uh, primarily uh, out of Colorado Springs, but that is an innovation and entrepreneurial engine that, first of all, uh, while all are welcome and it's open to all, really the design is, as you said, allow people to come with their innovation, their ideas, their technology, um, without having to do it in a classified sense, but really also uh, tuned to small companies and entrepreneurs with ideas that, that are really intimidated, unfortunately, and, and frankly, we, we are intimidating, when you think, oh, I'm going to go engage the, the gigantic Defense Department or U.S. government, right. or U.S. Air Force, yes. or U.S. Space Force. And so that Space um, Enterprise Consortium is especially tuned and designed to help make that connection. See what, you know, with small dollars and small engagements, see the technology, see the concepts, see the, the innovation that's out there. That's, I think, one of the, uh, the key things that makes us different than the rest of the world and make it easier to build that relationship, to let them develop their ideas and technology, and then see if there's a, way, a path forward to, to partnering. Well, let me uh, let's sag a little bit. Uh, we've got to talk about tactical ISR. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, there's lawmakers who are expressing concerns uh, over Space Force, maybe, or assuming responsibility for providing tactical ISR from the NRO. H has there been progress in your discussions with the Intel community on that? So, um, so, so um, first, yeah, a couple of things. First is uh, the NRO has been for decades and continues today to be one of our closest partners. We provide about a third of their government workforce. We already have mechanisms in place today to integrate on uh, architectures, to integrate on infrastructure where it makes sense. Um, uh, we're now working closely and have been for several years on you know, we have need to protect and defend the capabilities we have in orbit. They have that same need, so we've been working there. Um, so they already are and have been a close partner. The other piece is they are now 
part of that uh, uh, integrated force design activity that the Space Warfighting Analysis Center has established and has run through there first. And, and so we are, so that's the first thing is we have a close partnership. We work very hard on ensuring that there's, there's synergy and there's not duplication. The second thing is, uh, let's just say, as you think about joint all domain operations, joint all domain command and control, the tremendous need for that network sensor to shooter to decision maker uh, operating concept for the joint force that we're moving in the direction of. Um, it is going to be and must be data rich. Um, uh, and if you're talking about anti-access area denial, uh, a vast, a large, large portion of that data and that information has got to come from space. Um, and so in some cases, whether you call it ISR or tactical ISR or indications and warning or battlefield awareness, um, there's plenty of room for the national security space enterprise to work those problems together. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, uh, General Raymond just, I think uh, a few weeks ago, talked about the fact that we are looking at um, the migration of the mission of uh, ground moving target indication to space, right? JSTARS has done it and done it for decades very well, but it does it, it can't do it in denied uh, airspace. It can't do it over China and Russia every single day in peacetime. And so that mission moves to space is that it, it's certainly, I'll call it ISR, but is it, is it uh, tactical ISR? Is it battle space awareness? Is it domain awareness? And so we're looking at what it takes to move that mission to space. And we're looking closely with the intelligence community and primarily the NRO on what are the ways to do it? How do we, how do, we do it collaboratively and together? Um, do we field a capability? Do we leverage their capability? We're looking at all of those options to be able to provide that data and that capability effectively you know, and, and, and I would say in terms of, of the oversight required by Congress and others, bring it on. It's incumbent on us to show how we're working with the NRO and the intelligence community to provide that capability yeah. for the nation. And we'll sort out together how to do it effectively, not be duplicative and not end up with stovepipe capabilities um, that, don't, that, don't, that don't mesh, that don't, that don't interoperate. So I guess that's a short way of saying Lots of ground to plow here, lots of collaboration needed and, and already in place. And we will figure out together the best way to provide all of this data and awareness for the nation. Yeah, no, that's that's a tremendous uh, explanation of, of how this is, needs to go. I would ask you, and I know you, uh, of all the services, need to work very closely with your uh, the rest of the services. Uh, but but how do you see the Army's initiative talking about building their constellation? Uh, obviously, you said information needs to be sent, but they want to maintain operational. Is this is this du duplicative of uh, what uh, Space Force and Intel community provide now? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be careful. I don't speak for the Army and I won't yes. speak for the Army, but have been engaged yes. in many conversations with them. And what I would encourage people to do is, first of all, first of all, they have stated very clearly, as they should, you know, um, when, you know, as I talked about, join all domain operations, join all domain command control, this future of connection and interoperability between sensors and shooters and forces and how it all has, and decision makers and how it how has to fit together in real time and, and making, you know, near instantaneous decisions. You know, the Army knows, like the rest of us, that it's got to create the forces and capabilities for the future that do that. And they know that 
information and information from space is part of that. And so, uh, in, but what I'll say from there is, is I'm not sure, let's just say it's possible people are interpreting more from that perhaps than, perhaps than the Army's intending. Absolutely, they're looking at what data do we need from space? How do we get it? Who do we partner with to get that data? And they're certainly, uh, we're certainly one of their biggest customers. They're working with the intelligence community and NRO. And so I think people jump to the conclusion that the Army is going to build and fly satellites. And I'm not sure if you talk to the Army more, you may discover that's not really what their vision is, but they absolutely know and are committed to um, ensuring that the data and the capability they need from space that they're going to get from space. And there are many ways they're looking at to ensure that's the case. So oh, we love our US Army too. Let's make that clear. Well, General, um, the Joint Staff uh, was assigned, uh, or the Joint Staff assigned to Space Force responsibility for identifying space-based capabilities that'll be needed to support JADC2. And uh, you previously said that data relay communications through space is what will enable JADC2. So how, can you give us an image, of how will this differ from how SATCOM has been done in the past? Um, so I would characterize SATCOM as the in the past as um, uh, more more narrowly focused and stovepipe than where we're going in the future, right? You know, even as we talked about, it, we talk about protected communications, we talk about wideband communications, we talk about com on the move. Um, we bifurcate the requirements and the capabilities into those uh, bins, and then we build or buy or some of both to provision them. Um, uh, in a narrowly focused sense. Uh, and there will continue to be that sort of a need and role for satellite communications and space-based communications in the future, absolutely. But, but the, the real need and the growth and uh, um, the capability that's gonna move us into the future is going to be no kidding, what I'm gonna call that interconnected network that moves data, um, uh, that moves data all over the enterprise, that moves it to decision makers, that moves it to intelligence centers, that moves it to operation centers, that simply, um, uh, I'll, you know, and, and I, I wanna be careful because I could say the internet in space, but, but that's been used before. But this idea of this network that, that takes all types of data in all types of formats from all types of places and sensors and, and libraries and et cetera, and moves it where it needs to in real time without, do I have to establish a link or not? Do I have to get my terminal set up? Um, do I need some human in the loop to approve it and move it? And so that sort of a uh, mesh network that connects all of that is really where we have to go um, on the ground, in the air and in space to really uh, 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 realize the full vision of what we're gonna need to do for uh, joint all domain command and control to provide that capability for the future. And so it's going to be, um, it, it needs to be much uh, more uh, interoperable, uh, interoperable and, 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 and I'll call it path agnostic. The, the capability and the network needs to be there and the network needs to have the ability to know that information needs to move from A to B and it's going to make sure it gets there by any means necessary, not, oh, all I have is a wideband path or all I have is protected communications or all I have is some other form of space-based communication. So naturally, the move is, no kidding, we have to look at, at it in a broad sense. And, and, and 
and that may be so that and that's one of the big force design efforts that the space warfighting analysis center is going to be doing starting later this year is that data relay and satellite communications element um, personal opinion personal opinion only may be one of the most consequential activities um, that the u.s space force will engage in uh, for a long time uh, well, we are watching that. Very good. Uh, we also are watching some of the DARPA research uh, with laser communications, which very exciting uh, area of technology that that helps enable what you're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, let me swing to uh, commercial space services. You mentioned previously uh, that Space Force is looking to expand uh, acquisition of commercial space services uh, beyond SATCOM to include ISR data analysis. Can you give us an update on that progress and do you, how do you see this evolving? Yeah, uh, sure can. Um, uh, some will remember that back in uh, 2018, the Commercial Satellite Communications Office that was organized under uh, Defense Information Systems uh, Agency, DISA, uh, was moved from DISA into um, uh, Air Force Base Command at the time for one, I'll call it a one-stop shop, so to speak, for the provisioning of SATCOM for the department and the joint force. Um, as part of our design activity and, and, and determining what the space force should look like, that's one of the elements that we've moved into Space Systems Command. It remains and provides that activity. So, so again, sort of that same idea of it's not it's not consolidation in the sense that it's absorbed somewhere because we didn't believe that was the correct answer. It maintains that capability, except in this case, uh, the design team uh, um, proposed and uh, leadership approved an expansion of that office beyond commercial SATCOM to commercial space services in general. And so that, that office is in the process right now of expanding into those other commercial services. And as as increasingly commercial services in other areas, uh, remote sensing and, and space domain awareness and a whole host of other areas continue to be um, increasingly available, that arm, first of all, they are incorporated and will be incorporated as part of our, what I'll call our force design activity. And that office will be the arm by which we ensure it's provided effectively, effectively for any and all, but also efficiently, which means the ability to buy it once, the ability to buy it in bulk, and the, the advantages that come with being a large uh, 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 customer rather than onesie twosie uh, um, in that sense. And so, so it's part of the overall design. It's been integrated as part of our space, you know, what's, what is about to be our space systems command. And it is the office that's going to be responsible for ensuring we understand and we have the mechanisms by which to to procure and provide those commercial services where, when, where, and how they Thank you for that update. So uh, if I could ask you one last question for this segment, and that would be for you to uh, think out a few more years, but uh, I mentioned DARPA and DARPA is also moving out on nuclear propulsion and nuclear power. And uh, we may see some space testing on propulsion in you know, just a few years. How important, as you look out there, is nuclear propulsion and power going to be to the warfighting guardian of the future? Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, nuclear, nuclear power in general is always one of those interesting conversations that the nation has, and there's lots of uh, perspectives and opinions. Um, as you no kidding look at operating long term and sustainably in space, 
I think absolutely the nation has to look again at, at what its perspective is and what its use is. I know, we know, for example, uh, NASA is looking at that for as it returns to the moon and looks out further. Um, I think two things. First of all, uh, nuclear propulsion itself, propulsion, <clears throat> excuse me, holds, uh, I would say, the potential for a significant advantage. Um, if you look at it in terms of efficiency, it's about twice as efficient as uh, I'll call what I'll call our standard um, um, uh, uh, chemical rockets today. And so with a doubling in efficiency, in essence, in some ways, a doubling in performance, it, it expands the, op the envelope in terms of how far you can go, how much you can use it, so on and so forth. So, so that, is an that would be an evolutionary step in that regard. What I would contend is I'm just as interested in the nuclear power aspects of uh, nuclear, the nuclear, uh, uh, the, the potential for nuclear use in space. Um, you know, just imagine, uh, you know, and certainly as we, you know, and has always been the case with NASA, the further away you get from the sun, the harder it is for solar panels to do what you need them to. But um, solar panels are also very large. They're also very flimsy and they also limit your ability to do things like uh, maneuver quickly and under high G should you need to do that. And so, uh, like I said, there are certainly large scale policy considerations and, and that discussion that has to occur, but absolutely I think the nation and, and, and the Space Force as part of it has to look hard at the advantages and opportunities that nuclear power and nuclear propulsion decide or, or provide and decide very deliberately how we want to proceed. Yeah, and, and it appears that we're at the front end of a, of a new uh, public discussion about nuclear power, uh, both on, on land and, and, and in space uses. Uh, and it's probably not too early to start uh, educating and informing about the safety and need for, for these two uses of nuclear. Yes, sir, and as you know, it, it's our job to provide our insight and perspective and advice to our civilian leadership and they'll tell us what we can and can't do and, and we will proceed along those as they, as they direct. Well said. Well, we've come to the end of this segment of our discussion, uh, General Thompson, DT Thompson, thanks again for your insights, your openness, sharing your perspectives on the future of the Space Force and especially past thanks to your support team. They are, they are world-class. Thanks. Always glad to hear that, and, and, and it's been a real privilege joining you here today. As an alert to our listeners, our next Space Power Forum is on August 3rd, when we will be hosting Senator Mike Rounds. We certainly hope you'll join us for that. Okay, we're now going to open the session to audience questions who've been listening to our conversation, General. And as a reminder to our listeners, you can participate by using the Q&A function. Uh, raise, or I should say the raise hand function on your device. Uh, when I call on you, please unmute, uh, state your name and where you're from, and then ask your question. And uh, we've got lots of questions in writing and, uh, and I'll be going through those as we go ahead. So first I uh, call on Teresa Hitchens and Teresa's from Breaking Defense. Hi, sir, it's nice to see you. Thanks for doing this today. Um, my question goes back to um, responsibilities for the gathering of ISR data, tactical ISR data. And I want to know if you can explain more clearly 
who's in charge of making the deci decisions for the um, responsibility, who gets what responsibility to do what. And this is both for uh, building uh, satellites to do this and for acquiring tactical ISR because the NRO also is responsible for acquiring tactical ISR, if you will, imagery data, geoint data, which is a piece of tactical ISR. Um, the Army's looking at doing some of that, but, but primarily my question is between NRO and, and the Space Force. I understand that on the commercial end that there is a new council, a commercial council at the IC that's going to be discussing some of these issues, but could you just help me understand how these decisions are made? Because it seems to me that there are pretty um, intense discussions going on that, that have to be resolved at some point for people to know what they're supposed to do and where they're supposed to put their budget money. Uh, sure, uh, uh, Teresa. Good to good to hear from you again, and uh, um, thanks for the question. Uh, what I'll say in general and in principle, uh, the responsibility and the decision is that of the intelligence community. And I know that's sort of a general answer, but but uh, but as we talk about it, and you think about what the intelligence community is, clearly you've got the director of national intelligence that 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 is responsible for oversight and leadership of that entire community. Um, but it has several key elements, including the NRO, obviously. Um, uh, it has 18 members, and those members include uh, the intelligence apparatus of the services, including the Space Force. The Space Force was added as the 18th member uh, back in January. And it has a fun, strong and fundamental element um, uh, intelligence undersecretary on the, on the um, OSD staff working directly for the Secretary of Defense. And so, so the apparatus and the processes and the activities are in place to already ensure across the intelligence community and, and, and I'll say with the intelligence community and other elements of the DOD to include the services, both the providers and users, all of those mechanisms are in place to ensure that those uh, uh, those issues and those opportunities and those concerns and the need to integrate but not duplicate uh, are raised and decisions made on who provides, how they provide and how they're, they're um, uh, interrelated. And so I would say those mechanisms are all already in place and already being exercised to ensure that's the case. And we just need to ensure that we use them effectively to both make sure the right decisions are made and, and, and collectively the right capabilities and information and intelligence is provided to both national leadership and, and the joint forces and others. Do you expect these um, some of these decisions to be um, represented in the 2023 budget? Uh, I do. Okay. Thank you. And, and I'll stop there Thank for you. now because yes, we're very early in the budget process. Way yeah. too early to be talking much more about the 23 budget. We're here to protect you there, General. <laughs> uh, Courtney Alban from uh, Inside Defense. Yes, uh, good morning. Um, my question is about the Space War Fighting Analysis Center. Um, some lawmakers have raised concern about possible duplication between the missions of the SWAC and the Space Security and Defense Program. I wondered if you could speak about how the Space Force views the distinction between those two organizations and 
um, from your point of view, what might be the pros and cons of consolidating them? Yeah. So, um, so a couple of things. One is, in fact, what we've done, and 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 some of this is very much, you know, evidence that we have to continue to communicate and inform and and discuss, so that to ensure that 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 the vision and the understanding and the specifics of what we're intending to do um, is available to all. And so, so really, what we have done with the Space Warfighting Analysis Center is. Um, uh, Space Security and Defense Program, SSDP, has a charter that's very specifically focused on uh, an element of the space enterprise and a mission set of the space enterprise. And that's primarily, as it says, security and defense, what we need to do to protect and defend capabilities that we have in space. Um, it is not chartered. And by the way, that organization is chartered by the Deputy Secretary of Defense and, and Principal Deputy Director of the DNI. It's not chartered to say, what should we do for an enterprise for missile warning, missile tracking, missile defense? It's not chartered for what should our future positioning, navigation, timing enterprise uh, look like? It's not chartered to do what should our space uh, data relay and tracking enterprise look like? So in fact, what we've done, and I think here's where we, we have to work harder at communicating more effectively is we've taken that model and simply replicated it across those other mission areas. And so it's not duplication, it's taking that tremendous organization, all that it's done for us and said, we just need to resource it and build these activities to be able to do it in all those other areas. And in fact, that's what we've done. Now SSDP remains um, because it's still a joint organization between the intelligence community and the Department of Defense, one of those other mechanisms by which we integrate and said that remains in place. And we, in essence, these other, these other um, uh, capabilities and analysis capabilities and design activities now occur in parallel in the other missionaries. And that's what we've done to build the Space Warfighting Analysis Center. So what we've really done is said, absolutely, we agree. SSDP is effective, it has worked effectively. It's done great things for the nation, for the National Security Space Enterprise. Why wouldn't we, you know, we looked at a whole host of ways of doing this. Why wouldn't we expand that repertoire and that set of capabilities across the entire set of missions we're responsible for? And that's what the space warfighting analysis has said. And, and oh, by the way, the space warfighting analysis isn't doing in its own, on its own um, uh, security and defense. It's counting on SSDP to be connected with the rest of the elements of the SWAC to do that for the National Security Space Center. And so that's what the SWAC is, why we think it's vital. Also, why it's important to bring that unity that our national leaders have been talking about for years and really turn this into the rigorous analytical development of capabilities that, that has been lacking for, for the past decades with respect to the Air Force. Very good. Uh, Frank Wolf uh, from Defense Daily. Uh, yeah, good morning, General. Um, just wondered if you could uh, discuss a little bit um, the, re the replacement of SPADOC with uh, Project Atlas, how that's um, coming along, and also uh, uh, just in terms of unified data li library, I guess it, the contract had been awarded to BlueStack for that to develop uh, the UDL um, uh, if, on those elements. And if you would, just uh, if there's a timeline for space-based radar, uh, again, you, we you talked about that already with the, the tactical ISR, but if, if there's any kind of notional timeline that's out there yet uh, in your discussion uh, with NRO others, uh, if there's any ideas on that 
space-based GMTI timeline on that. Um, uh, sure, thank you very much. Uh, uh, first, I got an update. I was about uh, two and a half weeks ago on uh, all things space domain awareness to include SPADOC and ATLAS. In fact, um, um, you know, it, it's long since overdue to, to replace that, 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 19 eras, that 1980s era technology and Atlas and, and, and unfortunately now you're stretching my memory, which is which increasingly failing me every day. But, but I absolutely, Atlas is on track near term. And if not later this year, whatever the schedule is, I think it's either later this year or early next year when it's supposed to deliver and really allow us to get off that old platform. Um, it is moving along quickly and aggressively and, and right now absolutely meeting all the gates to do that. So feeling very, very confident that it's gonna come in and, 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 and ensure that we don't have the risk associated with that old and slow and fragile and, and frankly obsolete platform that, we've been, that has been serving us well for years, but we have long since need to replace. That's one element. Um, it's also part of a broader activity to do a couple of more things as you described um, the Unified Data Library, it is our, it is one of the large and key contributions that the Space Force is providing uh, both to the joint um, uh, uh, JADC2 activity between the Air Force and Space Force, which is uh, Advanced Battle Management System, but also we believe in, in, in working with the joint community, a key element of JADC2 writ large. Um, uh, we've, as you said, we put that in place and, and really a couple of things are happening. The first is we put the unclassified piece in place first. We built out a uh, secret level. We built out, we're building out higher level classification levels. So this is no kidding unified in the sense that it encompasses all classifications. Um, but where we're using it and where it's incredibly valuable for us today is in a couple of areas. One is no kidding, we've, we've used it in several of the uh, ABMS demonstrations that show how you would use such a data library and repository for a whole host of reasons. Um, understanding issues with access, understanding issues with latency, understanding issues with the architect architecture. So we're also learning a lot in that regard to be able to make the smart decisions that are coming to evolve it and ensure that it provides what it needs to in, in terms of, of JADC2. So that's the second piece. And circling that back to Atlas, it is our repository for space domain awareness data so that we can move beyond Atlas, really bring in and, and fully utilize uh, all sorts of data beyond what I would call standard traditional space domain awareness data, um, data of all sorts and all qualities to be able to use uh, uh, state-of-the-art processing and exploitation techniques to fuse and use all of that data. So it's also serving that foundation to evolve uh, the space domain awareness enterprise. Uh, and then, um, so that's where we are. And then then finally, in terms of space-based radar, ground moving target indication, um, I, 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 unfortunately, I really can't, I can't give you a whole lot of additional detail right now for several reasons, other than to say, it is an active program that we are both engaged, both in the, um, uh, force design related activity as to see what it should look like and how, what the interrelationship is between what we should do and what the NRO and what the IC should do. And really to make sure we're doing the appropriate technology and other development activities that would lead to production and fielding of a capability sometime in the future, relatively near future. Thanks. Hey, General, if I could just uh, one last question, we're gonna extend a couple minutes here. 
I think this will be uh, fairly brief. You referred to it earlier in your uh, opening comments. This comes from Air Force Magazine, I'll read it. Can you talk about how European partners and their capabilities make uh, uh, US Space Force stronger? Uh, you mentioned that uh, some of these partners in the past were only willing to cooperate on the civilian side of space, but not on the military side. Has that changed? Uh, sure, I, uh, absolutely. So, so first of all, that has changed dramatically in the last several years, um, in large part due to the activities of potential adversaries and the understanding from those other nations what the implications are of the inability to operate in space and what an adversary could do if they take those capabilities away. And so, so that has certainly helped, but also the strong partnership that we've had with both traditional and, and, and I'll call other allies that front, not traditional from a space perspective that, that we're increasingly working more closely with um, participation in, in uh, war games and, and exercises. And especially I'll highlight uh, the Shriver War Game series that we've done now for uh, uh, more than two decades, but in the last decade, certainly focused much, much more on with our partners, not just at the operational level, but sometimes at the ministerial and, and policy level has really brought them in on board and understanding the threats and challenges and needs we all face collectively in space. So that's the first thing. Um, second thing is, you know, and I'll go a little bit back to the culture we grew up in when we were talking about classification earlier. In the past, uh, we owned it all, we did it all. We had this culture that basically says, uh, we're our own independent self-contained enclave and whatever we need, we build, we field, we operate and we use. Uh, can't afford to do that anymore. Absolutely should not expect that we should afford to do that. And so, so that those engagement and that cooperation really increasingly now is, and these countries have been asking for several years and, and we've been effective to some extent, ineffective in total they've been coming many years and saying, look, we understand the importance of space. We have a limited budget. We need to invest in ways that matter to us and matter to our allies and partners, starting with the United States. Help us understand where you want us to invest or your thoughts or give us your thoughts and inputs on where we, we should invest. Now, as, as sovereign nations, they'll decide whether they want to, but they've, they've been much more excited about where can we help and what should we be doing? And so um, so that's increasing now with the Space Force and the immediate areas that we can and should be doing this in are the areas of uh, communications and data relay, space domain awareness, a whole host of other things that we can share and partner with that they're ready to move out with immediately. We're, we're already working. We've, we've been doing it for years with uh, the Brits and the Canadians and the Australians and uh, the New Zealanders. We're increasingly doing it with Germany and, and Japan and France. And even look at other, you know, you know, surprisingly, surprisingly, perhaps to some, Norway is a pretty reasonable space power, power for a very small nation, but they bring important capabilities and they're ready to move forward and partner and they have been. And so those sorts of things and engagements are really helping us to move out and really making us better collectively, but also ensuring that we, the United States and the US Space Force and, and others don't and shouldn't believe that we're the ones who have to pay for and provide all the capabilities. Well, very good, General. It's been a delight to uh, talk to a space war fighter of your caliber this morning, and we've come to the end of this Space Power Forum event. Uh, big thanks to you again, General D.T. Thompson. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
You bet. To you and your, our audience from all of us here at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, have a great aerospace power day.